0: follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.
2: I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories.
3: This is Levi Lee, uh, Salt Lake City resident, four years active duty Army as an intelligence analyst, and then uh, six years as a contractor, doing the same kind of work for whoever would pay me the most money, so. Wow. Okay. So where are you originally from? I grew up here in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: Okay. So why did you join?
3: Uh, The second part, to make the most money possible for six years as a contractor, so.
1: So that's why you joined the military in the first place? Oh, yeah. How did you find out about that? Because I, I wouldn't have known about that. No,
3: I read a lot of Marvel comic books, and The Punisher is one of my favorites. And he uh, had a skill set that was very valuable and very lucrative, and he made the most of it after the military service. There's, there's a tragic storyline there, too. but right, yeah. Or I just wanted to become a, a, a defense contractor and make a bunch of money running around the world and doing exciting things.
1: So when you joined the Army, uh, did you get deployed right away, or what year was that?
3: Almost immediately, yeah. Um, I joined in 2003, and uh, I was originally going to go with the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps wouldn't give me the job I wanted. I wanted a top-secret security clearance, and I wanted to deploy so that I could use both those things when I got out. And uh, they just simply wouldn't agree. So I was like, okay, well, there's an army office right over there. I'll go and talk to those guys, see if they'll give me the things I want. And the army was willing to. I had to bend a few arms and, uh, you know, twist a few ankles there. But, uh, yeah, um, I was actually sitting in the recruiter's office, and we watched the invasion of Baghdad. And we watched the Marine throw the American flag over uh, the statue of Saddam. And I turned to the recruiter. I'm just like, everyone knows this is a bad idea, right? Right. He's just like, hey man, you're joining. I'm already in. So it was a, uh, it was quite a day, quite a little touchdown to look up and go, yep, this is this is going to be the adventure of our lifetimes right here. So I'm um, so jumping what, in. what
2: is the job of an
3: intelligence analyst? Uh there's a, a wide range there, and that can include everything from the linguists that you know learn the language so that they can either intercept data or uh, do the interrogations, the interviews, I was able to get the all-source intelligence analyst position, which involved taking everyone else's work, uh, passing it off as my own, and uh, trying to get medals that way. So,
1: But I want that statue – because I watched that too. Oh, I yeah. mean, you're in the recruiter's office watching that. Did you have any trepidation at all, any regret, any fear, or was it – or like did you have any idea it would last – what is it now? Eighteen years? 18
3: years? I, I didn't think that it would last for eighteen years. No, absolutely not. Um I knew that the uh the Afghanistan war set problem was gonna be a, a very long time thing. But um I had no idea that we would still be in Iraq and the threat evolved. I understand that. I understand the emergence of ISIS, but no, I didn't I didn't think we would try to go in there and do the nation building that we did. No.
1: Okay, so uh, when you said you got almost immediately deployed, when, when were you? When did you get deployed?
3: I got deployed in December of two thousand and four. So I spent all of two thousand five in Iraq.
1: Okay, so you were there for a year.
2: So a little I, over. Yeah, you and I were there at the same time.
3: Oh, really? Yeah. Where yeah. were you? I was in uh, Kirkuk. Okay, the, the north, right? Yes, uh-huh. okay. just south of Mosul. I feel like. At that time, I was in the middle of the Sunni Triangle. I was okay. in a place called uh, Iskanderia or uh, Musaib. There's a uh, power plant there that spews black death all day every day from four smokestacks on the Euphrates River. If you ever drove past that, that's uh, that's where I got asthma. So, uh, yeah, I, I used to run back-to-back six-minute miles before I went to Iraq and uh, came back, and that was no longer the case. So, yeah,
1: That's legit. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah it was yeah. exactly what happened, yeah.
1: So um, you're there for a year, and then did you just come back after that, or did you deploy again?
3: No, that was the only deployment. Um, I had a four-year active duty contract and the the four-year inactive ready reserve contract afterwards. Um, With six months on the front end as a delayed entry program, which ties more closely into how I got the intel job. They were only willing to give me an intel job if I went into the delayed entry program. And that was one of the things I was arguing with the recruiters. I'm just like, we are starting two very serious wars right here. I've maxed out your ASVAB scores. I can do more pull-ups than anyone else. Of course you want me in your intelligence branch. Why are you telling me this is difficult? But uh, yeah, I did six months in the delayed entry program, and that resulted in me going to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina on December 30th. And uh, the fight at MEPS took so long. Because I'm like, no, I will not become a field medic. I know it sounds awesome, but I don't want to spend the rest of my time with soldiers asking me, hey, does this look infected to you? <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I actually had to walk out of the MAPS office and just say, no, I'm not doing this. They chased me down. They said, okay, what if you go in six months and you can be an intel analyst? And I read the paperwork. It had top secret security clearance. It had, uh, you know, all the benefits that I wanted to have in there. And uh, I looked at the bottom, and I'm like, all right, it's June right now. Maybe it's July. But this, de- this deployment date is December 30th. Are you really going to send me to basic training two days before uh, New Year's Eve? They're like, no, 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 that'll change. That'll change. We wouldn't do that. No, they did that. And that I was, was your
1: first realization that the Army did not tell the truth. Oh,
3: yeah. Well, and I knew it, too. I knew it. And I was like, well, I got everything I wanted here. Like, okay, fine. And so sure enough, I was on a bus with a bunch of new recruits heading to South, heading to Fort Jackson. And we're, we're counting waffle houses, which we'd never seen before. I'm like, I don't know what those are. And we're watching fireworks. Uh, and we get there on New Year's Eve. And Fort Jackson's like, what are you doing here? They're like, we'll go find a drill sergeant to yell at you. And there was like one drill sergeant on base because everyone else was on Exodus. It was insane.
1: And so what was it like being deployed?
3: Uh, Being deployed sucks. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there's a different way to tell that story. But um, I um, was actually deployed with a National Guard unit because just like what I argued to the recruiters, hey, intelligence people are going to be a hot commodity. I, um, I was actually, um, when I graduated from advanced individual training at Fort Huachuca, they didn't have a slot for me. They didn't know where to send me. Everyone else is going to 101st Airborne. Everyone else is going to 4th ID. And we're like weeks away from graduating. And drill sergeant finally comes out and he goes, Lee, you're going to Fort Bliss, Texas. What? what did you request that? Oh, there's nothing down there but air defenders and medics. And I'm like, Drill Sergeant, I also don't know where Fort Bliss, Texas is. And he's just like, well, it's in El Paso. And I'm like, I hear they have great salsa. I don't know anything about that, Drill Sergeant. And sure enough, got attached to an air defense unit, which really just kind of rotates back and forth to uh, South Korea. There's, you know, opportunities for them in Egypt and other places as well. Got to give them their credit. Got to give them their due. But uh, yeah, no, I was there for about seven weeks. And I looked at the misses, and I'm like, I don't believe this, but somehow I'm the one guy that's not going to deploy immediately after advanced individual training. And uh, sure enough, the National Guard sent a letter to Fort Bliss and said, give us anyone who is an intelligence analyst and give them to us now. I was from uh, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, actually. And uh, yeah, they noticed that my uniform didn't match the other Marines. So they pushed me down to a National Guard unit that was attached underneath them. Yeah, so paperwork. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And right? I'm
3: like, I'm I'm ready to go. I just yeah. don't see why this is so crazy. So
1: one of the things I wanted to have you on here for it was because you you've been outspoken about um, you know, the people in country who helped uh our soldiers, you know, interpreters yes. or people like that. What was your experience like with the people in country?
3: Um uh, as an intelligence guy, I, I will definitely say that I wasn't a linguist. I wasn't, you know, down there with those guys all the time. But there were plenty of occasions, both when I was in uniform and when I was a contractor there, that the, the locals that are willing to talk to you are both your lifeline. But you've got to keep in mind that, like, they have not read Machiavelli, but they definitely have their own motivations and their own reasons for doing what they're doing. And, like, of course, there were so many that worked with us that were doing it in order to get out of Iraq or get out of Afghanistan, and we abandoned them. But um, then I could also uh, point out that there were there were those that would talk to us because they knew they could get some money out of us and wait until the next unit showed up and get some more money out of us then. Just give us a different name, so, yeah. Um.
1: Did being uh, deployed change you?
3: Uh... It gave me asthma. I went over that already. Yes. (laughs) Physically, it changed you. It changed your ability to run a six-minute mile. certainly did. Um, I I don't know. I mean, that deployment with the military was one year. But then I also, uh, as a contractor, I spent three of those years in Washington, D.C. and three of those years in Afghanistan. So, like, whatever impact being deployed has on a person – it's difficult for me to extract that from who I am right now. I mean, like, one of my jokes is that, like, hey, I've been in war zones longer than most people go to college, and then whatever I'm arguing about on Facebook, I've suddenly won the argument, but, like, it's hard for me to say this thing about being deployed changed me. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: But I also notice on Facebook, though, you're pretty, uh, like, you use humor. A lot, yeah. A lot. As a defense mechanism, as a shield, as a weapon. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, did that was that something that you already had?
3: Uh yeah, I definitely already had that. Yeah. Okay. Um, in high school, I uh, we had a talent show, and uh, I noticed that I was funny, so I did the talent show. I did a just a stand-up comedy routine as a 16-year-old kid. No, younger than that. 15. I was a 15-year-old.
1: I take some yeah backbone, and
3: it never. And I never looked at it as taking backbone. I was just like, yeah. I'm good at it. Let's go do this thing.
1: Um, And so do you think that um, that served you well or that that was not a good thing for you? Um.
3: Uh, Being an intelligence analyst and having to take, you know, reams and reams of data and compress it into something that I could either explain to an infantry platoon about to go out on patrol or, you know, commanding generals that have got to decide the next year of their deployment, I I think – that being able to see the humor in things and being able to communicate efficiently was – that's and that's what I told the recruiters. I'm like, this is where I should be going. I should be going into the intelligence branch. So, so did that humor ever get you in trouble? Usually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For real? <laughs> oh, of course. So, I mean I got into a lot of trouble. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's why I'm compartmentalizing what I'm willing to talk about right now. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: tell me uh, why you left.
3: I never planned on staying. Yeah. I, I told everybody the day that I joined, I'm like, I'm going to sign one piece of paper that looks like this, and that's it. And they threw everything they could at me. They sent me to air assault school, and I'm like, hey, I'll happily go. And they're like, cool, will you re I'm like, nope. And they're like, well, we're going to send you to air assault school because you run really fast. And I'm like, cool, I'll go to air assault school and bring the unit great pride and joy. And uh, they sent me to, um, depending on when you went through, primary leadership development course then warrior leadership course. And they're like, Hey, we're sending you to the NCO leadership course, but we also want you to enlist reenlist. And I'm like, I'll go, but I'm not going to reenlist. Well, we know you'll do great. So we're going to send you anyway. And sure enough, I was the honor graduate. And, uh, even the, uh, the year that I was getting out, I was the NCO of the year. And they're just like, so when are you reenlisting? And I'm like, I've told you I'm not going to reenlist. So,
2: I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them.
1: Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches.
3: Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views.
1: That's Voices of Reason on the KSL radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. Was there any ever ever any time though or any soldier that you met that that maybe was m- more in question than or were you just 100% solid
3: on? 100% it? solid from the very beginning. Okay. Yeah.
1: And so then when you're doing working with private contractors, why did you quit doing that?
3: I had a 10-year plan and I got to the end of it and uh, I looked at um, I just wanted to do something different. I didn't have a 15-year plan. That would have been a better plan at the beginning of the plan. But, mm-hmm. no, I wanted to do four years active duty, three years learning. I loved living in Washington, D.C. Uh, the job I had in D.C. sent me all around the country, training the military on how to be better. And then I was able to roll up all of that experience and go to Afghanistan and uh, train soldiers on the front line on how to be better. So,
1: Were you training Afghani soldiers? No, Americans. American soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well,
3: uh, in you know, uh allied forces as well whenever applicable.
1: Okay. So uh, so when you say you compartmentalize, what are you trying to what are you compartmentalizing?
3: Oh, I like just yeah. Your
1: feelings about it or actually what happened?
3: No, more more what uh what happened. Uh not so much my feelings, I'm not worried about those. But uh like I'm not going to tell you the bad things I did. Come on. Why not? Because this is we're recording this.
1: <laughs> oh, this is for posterity. You got to tell oh, us. No, I don't. How did you put one over on Uncle Sam? Oh, <laughs> I did on. that
3: plenty of times. But no,
1: <laughs> no. Um, When you say you got in trouble, like any serious trouble or was it just mostly the, the usual?
3: Just more of the usual stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, it Um, is interesting to point out that uh, I was at Fort Huachuca. When the Abu Ghraib case uh, broke, when people found out about that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those individuals in the Abu Ghraib scandal went to the exact same buildings that we were all housed in. And we had drill sergeants that individually knew some of those guys. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I always knew how to avoid that kind of trouble. But, like...
1: Well, remember you had very strong feelings
3: about the Bo Bergdahl case. Oh, uh, we, yeah, um, I, know, I know some folks that uh, definitely uh, got the worst end of the military's response to the Bo Bergdahl case, yeah, because Bo Bergdahl never should have gotten in. He had no business being in the United States military, and even the Coast Guard could have told you that Bo Bergdahl had no business serving this country in any armed or authoritative or security capacity, and... Yet there he was. he was right there in Afghanistan in P2K. I can't remember which province exactly, but yeah.
1: So what did you, what do you take when you look back on your service in the military and maybe even the private contractor stuff? What do you take from that? Like what's some stuff that really stands out to you or things that you're really grateful for?
3: Uh, the money. Yeah. You knew I was going to say that
1: you're the punisher. Yeah, no, for-
3: exactly. Um, the, uh, The fraternity of it is amazing, because that's usually one of my responses. It's just like I could, and especially with, you know, people don't realize that when the Afghanistan war started, we didn't even have YouTube yet. To do a top-secret security clearance, you know, paperwork an SF-86 back then, that was hard work. Now, with social media and the networks, you can find everybody that's ever known you real quick and real easy. And so, literally, if I have a smartphone in my hand, I can probably find somebody who knows me from some point in my life, within fifteen, twenty miles of me, because I spent more time in war zones than most people spend in college, and the people who go to war zones are all over the world now. I mean, I was in, I was in Spain, and somebody saw me say, "Hey, are you running with the bulls?" And I'm like, "Yeah. How close are you to Madrid?" I'm like, "Well, I'm not close to Madrid, but are you living in Madrid now?" He's like, "Yeah, man, come see me." And <laughs> I'm like, "You have no idea how much I want to, but I can't do that right now." So
1: <laughs> Does love of country ever come enter into it or is it
3: Uh yeah, no. Um definitely uh uh definitely love of country. Um I don't know why I'm pausing here. I I just don't want to say anything that's, like, cliched. But, like, of course it's love of country. I'm super proud that uh, with my recent boxing events that I do back here in Salt Lake and the pro wrestling events, um, anytime that we do the national anthem, like, I'm 100% ready to hold the American flag in the proper uh, drill and ceremony and, um, yeah, render honor and salute and... Um, yeah, no, absolute love of country. I I just don't want that to ever be interpreted that I think that we're always doing the right thing, like the, the false patriotism of, you know, we're always correct, jingoism of it. Like, my recruiter could have told you that when I looked up and saw us throwing that American flag over Saddam, I'm like, hey, this is a bad idea. I'm willing to go and help. I'm willing yeah. to be a part of this. I want to make things right, but... Believe me, I'm not going to be on board if the idea is a bad idea. And and as an intelligence guy, which is actually quite a unique position and was exactly where I should go, is one of your jobs is to tell these hard-headed, I've always been right the entire time, my plan is foolproof individuals, what is probably going to go wrong.
1: Well, so did your... Feeling? Did your I guess your definition of patriotism did it change over time? I mean, you sound like you were savvy from the get-go, mm-hmm. but I you had to have learned things that looking behind the curtain, like you say, um, is it is a little bit disillusioning. But also, I don't think you had maybe you didn't think you know everything was roses all the time. Mm-hmm. But I guess it seems to me that maybe that definition would still evolve. It would still, and then sometimes the you know, what you think of as patriotism wouldn't look like what some of our politicians might want to make us think it sounds like.
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I also got kind of lucky because I read uh, Ronald Kessler's books, The FBI and the CIA.
0: Okay, perfect.
3: Uh, For you listening at home, uh, Amy is nodding that she knows what I'm talking about here. But, uh, see, I've listened to a few podcasts. I know how these things work. (laughs) But, um, yeah, and I, you know, these these just... um, revered organizations that are always right like you don't have to scratch too hard to find out that these organizations are still made up of people that still make mistakes both large and small Mm -hmm. and um i you know i saw what was going on in iraq and afghanistan and our involvement as being the most important thing going on in the world and there was an opportunity for me to be a part of that My younger brother was uh, uh, more motivated than I was. He actually joined the Marine Corps straight out of high school, whereas I kind of dilly-dallied around for a year or two. So uh, I joined the Army because they were willing to give me the job that I wanted, and he joined the Marine Corps because he was ready to go and he wanted to do it. And uh, we grew up in uh, suburban Salt Lake City, Utah, which is one of the most difficult places to recruit from. And of course, when the recruiters told us that, we thought it was a pity story, but we got a hold of the numbers, and they're telling the truth. It is one of the most difficult places to recruit. Why is that? Uh, a lot of people, young men at that age, are going on a different type of mission. Usually, so you can do both. I just want to throw yeah. that out there. I, I did, I did Jason both. has done both. There we go. Which one did you do
2: first? The mission, mission first. That's the I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> so do you find that it's difficult? And maybe just because of your experience. Is it difficult to trust people?
3: Um well, I already mentioned Machiavelli. Um <laughs> exactly. I uh I think he was yeah. born with
1: this distrust yeah. 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 of humanity. Yeah.
3: No. Um I think that it's not necessarily that you have to trust people, but understand their motivations, you know? Like Um I I don't think we're going to be like a trust fall here on this podcast, but I trust <laughs> that you would catch me yeah. Yeah. because it's in your best interest to catch me. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm more worried about, I, I focus more on understanding people's motivations than trustworthiness. So, so when, as an
2: intelligence, uh, working in intelligence, you talked a little bit about the, at least with the Iraqis and the Afghanistan, um, people, what, what was their motivation?
3: Um, very similar to our own, almost always. I mean, they're they're taking care of their families was one of the most important things. Uh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but um, also like being an intelligence individual, I would just come across so much fraud, and um, it was really hard to like. If you came to the occupiers, everyone in your village immediately didn't trust you anymore. So it's just like, okay, well, your friends don't trust you now. Why should we trust you now? So, um, yeah, and I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but they talk about their favorite interpreter who they loved so much. They found out months later that everyone the interpreter brought was just a, a personal vendetta that he was settling and he was, you know, as soon as they got, as soon as the U.S. military would take these guys in for questioning or send them off to a, a, a base somewhere, they'd find out that that person moved into their house and took all their wives. And it's just like, wow, this is this is difficult.
1: So, um, one of the things I did talk to my with my dad about, a Vietnam veteran, about. Um, but what if you don't believe that a war is just, we had this debate many times in my mm. youth. Uh, what if you don't believe in a situation or the assignment you're giving is it is just because he's of the mind being a Marine that you do what you're asked to do and you don't question it. Um, if if that order comes from your commander or your country. Right. And so we had this discussion and one of the things he said to me that stuck with me um, uh, that I wondered how you feel about is that you don't, ha- when you're assessing people's motivation um, you're not sentimental about it. Um, but that there's at, at the end of the day, it's not really about is your country, uh, you know, benevolent or mm-hmm. doing, the right thing. doing the right thing, but yeah. it is about, um, the guys that you're there with the people you are trying to keep safe. Um, the reason that you're supposed to be processing intelligence information and convincing those hard headed guys that what you're telling them is true or, or, you know, or real. um, I just wondered about that aspect of it. When you're processing someone's motivation, like how much of your affection or your loyalty to the other people, the other soldiers, the American people who wear the same uniform, um, like how much of that plays into it?
3: Right. And that's actually, um, you know, on the cosmic scale of things, I saw myself with my skill set joining the military cause as a way to protect my brother. My literal blood brother, who, you know, not an intelligence career field-minded individual, he wanted to do what he would be good at. And I saw using my skill set where I could use my skill set as me doing the most possible for me to protect my own own blood brother. And um, it's the exact same way in Afghanistan as well, and Iraq, that, you know, you definitely want to protect those that are around you. And... And we all, like, I think every war movie comes back to that. You know, it's just like you do it for the guy in the foxhole with you. You do it for the guys that are around you. So, yeah, absolutely. And every, you know, terrible, terrible situation that I found myself in, I would look at that situation and say, okay, well, I wish I wasn't here, but I am. So I'm going to make sure that I do the best thing possible here and protect everybody and make, you know, Try to make sure as many of us get out of this alive as possible. So,
1: what's the most valuable skill you have as an intelligence officer, and maybe your worst?
3: Ooh, I never an officer. That contract was too long, so I just. (laughs) It's just an intel analyst, but okay, um,
1: as an analyst, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, just I gotta, just want to promote. Gotta, come gotta, on, gotta, I'm gotta, all into the promotion. Oh, you're
3: not the only person that repeatedly <laughs> offered me, Specialist leave We got a green to gold program. You'll be an officer in three years. I'm like, I don't want come to. Come on, we yeah, will get come you. On, yeah. Come yeah. on, yeah. so the intel branch needs you. I'm like, I know you'll hire me later as a contractor
1: and pay me more money and pay me
3: it. more money to do it. But um. So Whoa. worst, worst, best pos- skill, yeah, worst, was tra-
1: worst trait, but cause, yeah. because I think there's probably some, uh, some really valuable traits that mm-hmm. you innately have and they're probably something you had to like, okay, that's not going to be my mm-hmm. best moment. I'm going to have to really learn from that. Yeah. Um, I would ask you mistakes you made, but maybe you don't want to say that.
3: Uh, mistakes that I made.
1: I mean, did you misread?
3: Uh, no, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's. Intentions or intelligence? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's definitely mistakes. What's the saying? Mistakes were made, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think I think to go back to the question that I uh, you you asked there originally about what skills were most useful, and I think uh, just that I'm a good communicator is very useful. Uh, Whatever the conversation is about, even if it's not a topic that I know very well, like I know what questions will lead to more information that's either useful to myself or useful to the other people that are around. And um, this is perfect. Uh, My father, who speaks Spanish fluently, referred to my ability to get on stage and say whatever as uh, being a bit sin vergüenza, which when you translate it to English as having no shame, it sounds really bad. But in Spanish, it means that you're just not worried about, you know, being ashamed. And uh, there were times in meetings where, you know, the the military loves to speak in long phrases of jargon and acronyms that literally no one understands. And I would readily, you know, like, I don't know what that acronym means. And, like, people would be like... I didn't know what any of the acronyms meant. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that one right there seemed like we needed to break it down and figure out exactly what we were talking about there. So, yeah.
1: So positive. And so negative traits in you, things that you had to rein in or learn to change or, um,
3: probably also, um, that would have come from the scene. vergüenza thing. So, um,
1: did learn to have shame. Yeah.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that will will drive anyone crazy about the military is just the over necessity for so many procedures that just like drill sergeant, it was the right thing to do. So I did it. You know, like I understand now that you wanted me to go talk to my squad leader and then my squad leader would talk to the platoon sergeant or whatever. I, I understand, but... There was a there was a problem. I saw a solution. I executed the solution, and you're gonna chew me out for days. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think I was at what was I? I was at warrior leadership course. Yeah, I was at uh, I was at warrior leadership course one time, and um, they had recorded the number of push-ups incorrectly on my physical training test, and um, I told the drill. I told the uh, I told my instructor. Every, every Monday, I think it was, whatever it was, I was like, drill instructor, I just know that my test scores are still wrong. Have those been corrected? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. Lee. I'll get to it. Lee. And then one day, you know, the first sergeant and the commander came to visit their, their soldiers going through warrior leadership course. And I wasn't going to lie to my commander and say nothing was wrong, sir. I said, yeah, my, uh, my test scores on my physical training test are wrong. And they're like, well, it should be 300. I'm like, it should be 300. And I uh, sure enough. I got yelled at forever, forever over that. I'm like I went to my instructor every week until my first sergeant asked me that question. And they were so mad at me. And I'm like I I could have lied to you or I could have lied to them. So chew me apart. I don't I don't care. I I have a date and on that date I'm leaving the military. So <laughs>
1: So you have a strength that can also be yeah. a weakness. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, she yeah. also got you into trouble.
3: Yeah. I got, I got chewed out one time because I told the gym that the, I asked the gym why their flag was at half mast because like, I was just curious. And then, like, somehow word got back to my platoon sergeant and my S2 OIC that I was asking questions at the gym. And who do I think I am? I'm like I just didn't know why the half flag was at half mast, and sure enough, it's because they had forgotten to bring it to full mast. So,
1: I would be in so much trouble if I had ever joined the military. Right? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal. Please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.